Here's a seemingly unrelated trivia question to get us started. Name a word in the English language that has five vowels in a row in the middle of it. Hey, it's Seth. And this is Akimbo. We'll be back in a second. But first, here's a message from our featured nonprofit, BuildOn.org. Check them out. They're doing important work. I'm going to start a chapter because I believe the fight against poverty and illiteracy is a very big fight. And it's one that we need to be universally together in. We started a chapter together, and it proved to be a really great way for us to develop our leadership skills and get involved with a larger organization that would empower us to change our lives and the lives of individuals around the world and in our own community. What I took away from this whole experience was that the more you give, the more you gain. The harder I worked to improve the lives of others, the more it gave me a life-changing experience in return. Yes, queuing has five vowels in a row, And the reason it's only semi-irrelevant is this. If you figured out the answer, or even if you tried to figure out the answer, the question is, did you start with the word A and then the word AA and work your way all the way to Zbeck trying to find the answer? Probably not. Probably your brain, if it works like most people's brains, started scrambling its way through possible answers. We're not exactly sure how the brain works, but we know how it works at a bank, and we know how it works at a supermarket. This is the idea of queuing theory. And queuing theory is far more important than we think when it's time to think about cultural revolutions. First, a vivid example from a writer named John D. Cook. Imagine that there's a bank and it only has one teller. Imagine that it takes 10 minutes for a teller to serve a customer. And also imagine that on average, randomly, customers arrive 5.8 an hour. What that means, if you do the math, of course, is if they arrived perfectly spaced out, there would never be a line. Because every 10 point something minutes, a new customer would come in and be served. However, they are not arriving perfectly timed, they are arriving randomly. It turns out, and this is stunning, if there's one teller and customers arriving at this rate, on average, a customer will wait nearly five hours to be served. This is astonishing to think about. I did the math. It's true. Even though the bank is only open for eight or nine hours in a row and the first person doesn't wait at all, the average person will wait five hours. But if we add a second teller, just one more teller, so there's two instead of one, instead of going down to two and a half hours, it goes down to three minutes, a 93x difference. Well, when we think about it, we understand why. Because usually there's only one or two people waiting, and that second teller completely eliminates that weight and lets the bank absorb the extra traffic. Where did queuing theory start? It came from the Copenhagen phone company as long ago as 1909. Because if you're going to build a phone company, you have a queuing problem. And the problem is you need operators standing by, 
ready to move those cables to connect one phone to another. And you need to make some estimates as to when people are going to want to make a phone call. If three people want to make a phone call at approximately the same time, and your goal is to have people be able to make a phone call when they need to make a phone call, you're going to need three operators. And before they figured out how to make phone calls automated, it was estimated that as many as half of all the women in the United States were going to have to work as telephone operators to deal with the demand for phone calls. When we're thinking about queuing theory, we're considering several factors. One of them is, how often does the next person who's going to demand service show up? Another one is, how many people are there to serve the next customer? And what we know is that different kinds of service offer different variations. If you go to a busy Whole Foods in Manhattan, what you will find is a corral in which all of the customers wait in one line, and then each person is allocated to the next available cashier. What you might find at a typical supermarket is you've got to pick your own line. And if you pick the wrong line, you're going to feel badly because you always pick the wrong line. Researchers want to know about balking, which is what happens if customers see that the line is too long from outside the store and don't even bother coming in. Jockeying, which is what they call it when you're moving from line to line, sure that you're in the wrong line, quickly moving to a shorter one, thus making it easier for the person providing service. And of course, reneging, leaving your cart filled with frozen food and walking out of the store in a huff. These behaviors change the way that we do the math. Also, the person who's offering the service has to make a choice. Is it first in, first out, otherwise known as first come, first serve? This is the way most of us think of as being the most fair. Or is it last in, first out, which means that the customer who came in the last gets served first. This is a stack. This is what happens to the plates at the buffet line. Or perhaps processor sharing can occur, in which one service person can serve more than one person, moving from one to the other. This is what happens when you're in chat support online and you can't figure out why it's taking so long to finish typing their response. The answer is they're working with more than one person. Or perhaps the organization decides to stack people based on priority, putting the most profitable customers first, putting the most annoying customers first. Maybe it's the supermarket deciding sort of perversely that the fewer items you're buying, the more likely it is that you will be in a short line. This is called shortest job first. And so what does this have to do with changing the culture? The insight is this that when a new technology comes along that blows apart queuing theory, it is eagerly adopted. So the queuing theory for buying an airplane ticket used to be you had to go to the airport or to the ticket bureau, wait in a line when there were only two or three agents servicing you, and buy your ticket. Then American Airlines came up with the Sabre system, which was a timeshare computer that allowed travel agents 
to bypass the queue. So now, instead of waiting for an agent on the phone or at the ticket agency, the agent could instantly look up a ticket without waiting long at all because the computer was doing processor sharing. You still had to wait for your travel agent to be free. I remember 40 years later, sitting in the travel agent's office, waiting for the person in front of me, who I don't know was going to Latvia or something, to finally finish so I could sit with the travel agent. Well, we all know what happened. Kayak and the rest of them show up. And now queuing theory is irrelevant when it comes to buying an airplane ticket because there's an infinite number of doors and there are no agents. Queuing theory then shows up when it's time to load the plane because the plane only has one door. Oh, wait. People's Express came up with the idea of loading from the back and the front. By having two doors instead of one, they loaded the plane in no time. But maybe the plane could be loaded even more quickly. Southwest Airlines got rid of reserved seats. Why? Well, one of the reasons is that the panic that people have that there won't be a seat for them, even though there's always a seat for them, means that people race onto the plane and sit down faster to make sure they have their seat. Southwest Airlines deals with queuing theory by creating anxiety. Or perhaps this idea, which I've never actually seen done in practice, imprinting on the carpet at the airport all of the seats so that everyone would go stand on top of their assigned seat on the carpet before they got on the plane so that then the plane could be loaded even more quickly. But back to this idea of getting rid of the queue when it comes to serving people, serving people with computers. Because processor sharing has now made it that you don't wait for the mainframe to get around to serving you. What most lay people don't understand about the internet is it is based on TCP IP and other forms of processor sharing. That what happens is the signal that is coming to you with your email in it or whatever's on that web page is bouncing from computer to computer to computer without ever having to wait in a line. Think about what happens when we order food in. It used to be that if you wanted to get a pizza from Johnny's Pizza in Mount Vernon, New York, there was only one phone. So if you tried to call at a time when someone else was making an order, you were out of luck. Now, when we hook up the internet to restaurant delivery services and terminals, lots of people at the very same time can get access to the information or ordering that they need. I am not arguing that any of this is a good thing. What I am pointing out is that it is one of the symptoms of a change in the culture. The library? The library has a line. If you want to get one of the best-selling books, put your name on the waiting list. There is no similar thing going on with the Kindle. If someone wants it on the Kindle, they can have it on the Kindle. That what the internet has done is added processor sharing to queuing theory so that almost all the time, the line goes away. But human beings, human beings sort of like being online sometimes. It wouldn't be that difficult to engineer Disney World so that there wouldn't be much of a line, that you could blow through it seeing more rides in less time if they just coordinated everyone's actions. But I don't think it would be as fun. 
My dad and I used to ski at Kissing Bridge in Buffalo, New York at 8.30 in the morning on a Saturday. We were the only people there. We never waited in a lift line. Up, down, up, down, up, down. I'm not sure it was always more fun than the pleasure of anticipation of figuring out that you've earned something. That what we are seeing in little tiny pockets of the internet is that scarcity creates value. That rankings and queuing theory make people feel like they've gotten something special. That one of the things that goes on in an auction, which isn't quite queuing theory but is close, is this. You don't have to justify how much you paid for something in auction. You just have to justify you paid a little bit more than the number two bidder. And the story that we tell ourselves when we win an auction isn't necessarily a story about what we paid or even what we got. It's a story about winning, a story about coming out ahead in the queue. So when we look at the next innovation, when we try to consider who is going to create value, it might be worth looking at the fact that some innovations blow up the line that adding that second teller gave us a 93x improvement in how long we have to wait in line. And if we can make the line go away, if we can serve more people, if we can figure out how to do it with equity and dignity, we might end up creating value. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. We'll be back in a second with answers to some questions from previous episodes. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. If you want to learn to ride a bicycle, don't watch a video, don't read a book. Hey, it's Seth, and I'm here to talk about the Akimbo Workshops. These are interactive, real-time, online workshops that work. And we're devoting 2020 to finding one that matches where you need to go. If you're ready to level up, I hope you'll check out akimbo.com to find out about our proven, effective workshops. Hey, Seth. It's Maria. Hey, Seth. My name's Kyle. Reading Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Seth. Alicia from Charleston here. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi, Seth. Warm greetings from Curacao. Hey, Seth. My name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Seth. This is Rex. Hey, Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. As you know, I love to hear from you. Please bring on the questions. We've got plenty in backlog, but we'd love to add yours as well. Visit akimbo.link, that's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K, and click the appropriate button. Some questions this time about creative work, perfectionism, and being adopted by the market. Here we go. Hey, Seth. This is Max from Brooklyn, New York. I just finished uh, listening to your Pursuit of Perfection episode, and I had a question about the tension between shipping creative work and uh, feeling like a hack doing it. So I'm an aspiring screenwriter, and I often get to a point in editing my work to where I feel like, where I question whether or not it's good enough to ship, in other words, to send out to people, um, or whether or not I should keep working on it. And a lot of times, if I'm honest, I feel like laziness can affect me, and I will just get to the point where I will just say, I'm I'm tired of editing this thing. I just want to send it out, and I send it out. 
And I worry about whether or not that's me just shipping out the work and um, waiting for the world feedback and getting started on the next thing and continuing to do that and showing up or whether I'm doing it simply because I just don't want to do it anymore because I'm taking the easy way out. And so I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Thanks for everything you do. Bye. Thanks for this, Max. I think the key phrase you used was that you might be tired of it or that you might be lazy. And so we need to distinguish between perfectionism that happens because we're afraid of digging deeper, afraid of putting something into the world that might backfire versus the exhaustion that we get from polishing something to a high sheen because in most fields, a high sheen is required to get to the next level. So here's one way to think about it. If you could hand your editing work to a freelancer, to someone who gets paid less than you, and they could make it better, then maybe you should. Because better in that case means more polished, means following the instructions, getting rid of the typos, making sure that the jump cuts aren't sloppy. That's different than holding back the work you could do to make it more like you could do it, only you could do it. To push in that direction noticeably is not perfectionism. It's the opposite. It's bravery. It is showing up with your voice for people who want to hear it. And understanding the distinction between the two is really important. I know that years ago, I stopped trying to edit the last level of typo perfection in my books. I hire someone to do it. We've never even met. John does a great job. I don't do it. He does it. And people don't come back to me and say, wait a minute, you spelled this word wrong. That puts me further on the hook to be distinctive in the work, in the writing, and let the polish go to somebody else. But if you're in the polish business and people are hiring you for polish, then that's something you need to bring. Hey, Seth. This is Josh from Omaha. As an author, I've self-published a series of two middle-grade books with a third on the way. The kids that read my books absolutely love them, and so do their parents. The problem is I can't get new families to give my books a chance. I took your advice and created a free PDF to give away to my Facebook friends, but only one person requested it. To lower the barrier to entry, I recorded an audio version of the first book and put it on YouTube, but it premiered to crickets. I also plan to release the book as a podcast, but I don't have high expectations for its performance. My question is this, is it worth putting in the effort to try and be curated by a traditional publisher in hopes it will raise my status enough that people might give my books a chance? I've had one agent interested in the series and I put three weeks of work into the business proposal only to be rejected in less than an hour with no further explanation. I'm willing to put in more of this type of work. I'm just not sure it's the best use of my time and energy. Thanks for everything you do, and I'm looking forward to your new book. Thank you for this, and thank you for the writing you're doing. A PDF is not a solution to most any problem. The purpose of the PDF is to make something easier to spread. And if it's not spreading, there are a bunch of reasons why that could be. Finding a publisher who will curate your book and give you some level of status will only work with perhaps school librarians, but the typical reader has no clue who published a book. So I'm not sure the question is, 
how do I get a publisher? I think the question might be, after 10 people read this, why aren't they sharing it? What would need to be built into the book to make it more likely that people would choose to share it? So when you say to your Facebook followers who wants a free copy and people don't ask for it, it's probably because there isn't sufficient tension to get them over the hump. I just listed something on eBay with a 99 cent opening bid, no reserve, and it's worth hundreds of dollars. Well, two and a half days into it, there's not one bid. Why isn't there at least one bid? Clearly, someone wants this thing for four bucks. Well, maybe not, because in their head, it might be, well, it's too good to be true. At four bucks, it might not be what it appears to be. And we go on and on. Cheaper doesn't always lead to trial. What leads to trial is a combination of trust and tension. And what leads to an idea spreading, other people wanting to read your book, is something that says, this works better if I tell other people about it. So don't give up. Persist. But figure out probably in conversation with some of the people who read it, possibly in conversation with people who haven't read it, what does spread? What do they talk about? What creates enough tension that people want to dive in? Our next question isn't really a question. It's a contribution from a great teacher who has something to say about you only live once and fear of missing out. Hi, Seth. It's Howard from Hillsborough, New Jersey. I was looking over one of your blog posts that spoke about fear of missing out versus knowing I'm missing out, or FOMO versus Kimmo. It always triggers my mind to think of the other common expression of YOLO, or you only live once. That idea that if you knew you only had one week to live, and how would you live that last week? This is a concept I often hear my teenage students talk about when giving excuse to do something that is somewhere between foolish and brave. One of the concepts I've challenged them with is, what if you turn this concept around and said TOLO, T-O-L-O, and they ask, what is TOLO? I tell them to turn the tables and say, what if you knew it was someone else's last week and they didn't know and you couldn't reveal it to them? They, whoever they are, only live once. How would you treat that person? Tolo is the only way to go. Thank you for this, Howard. You're right. They only live once is a posture changer. I appreciate you chiming in on this one. And one last question for today. Hey, Seth. This is Roger from Chicago, Illinois. In a recent episode, you mentioned something I've thought about a lot over the years. You were talking about how telephone companies will offer large bonuses or promotions to get new customers to switch over and maybe not reward customers that have been loyal to their business over the years. I've often thought about marketing in this sense and wonder why there aren't more companies that reward loyalty. So, for example, maybe you start out paying $100 a month and then as some sort of time ticks on, maybe it's every year, your monthly payment gets reduced down to some floor uh, to reward this loyalty. Uh, I just wanted to get your thoughts on that, if you've seen it in the market or if anybody's tried it or where I can change my cell phone plan to, but I really appreciate your thoughts. Hope you're well. This is a great point. David Brin wrote a science fiction novel years ago called The Practice Effect. And it imagined that the laws of entropy worked in reverse, that the more you used the saw, the sharper it got, that everything in our lives could be improved with use, which meant that in a society based on capitalism, wealthy people would hire people who weren't well off to wear their clothes and use their tools so they would be even better when they decided to use them. 
So I got to thinking, what would happen if marketers said, the more you use it, the less it costs, until years and years into it, when you're using your cable or your phone service, it's actually free. What would happen if we did that? Well, one of the challenges is switching costs, that many marketers spend a lot of time working on lock-in, making it expensive to switch, expensive to switch your insurance or where you live or your phone number, and so we stick with it. And so the competitors need to lower their price to induce people to switch. But if you're going to do that and you're going to lower your price for people to stick, there is no moment at which your price approaches what you need to charge. So what if we went all the way in the direction you're describing? What if getting started wasn't cheap? There was no inducement or come on. However, it kept getting cheaper and cheaper. Well, if there's enough of a network effect, the loyalty that you created by rewarding people for sticking around might lead to word of mouth. And word of mouth plus network effect could lead to lowering your marketing costs, making it so you wouldn't need expensive inducements and come-ons. And if we think about it for a minute, we realize that lots of areas of our life where we don't have to pay an annual fee, things like which tribes do we belong to, the fact that you drive a Harley or don't, that you're part of a spiritual institution where your status is higher. These are places where we do, in fact, reward people for longevity and where the network effect leads to evangelism, to bringing other people in. So it might be a breakthrough idea. You should name it after yourself. Maybe someone will run with it. Thanks again for listening. Love to hear from you. We'll see you next time. I just don't think it's possible or probable in, in today's world to distinguish yourself as an educational institution or as a success seeker at the level of, of information gathering or information distribution. I mean, this is the information age and you can get a great book, a great essay, a great idea anywhere, you know, and none of us can do that better than the internet, right? Um, there is no great thought leader who can outthink the internet. Like, we have data. What All MBA gets right is it puts you in a context where you're part of a community that says, yeah, 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 that's good. You got access to ideas, you got access to information, that's awesome, but when are you gonna show up? When are you gonna face that blank page? When are you gonna face the possibilities within you? When are you gonna face those fears? I'm not gonna let you hide. You gotta show up. And that's the hardest part. And it sounds simple, it sounds very commonsensical, but it's the number one reason why we don't write that book. It's the number one reason why we don't ask that question. It's not because we don't know or we don't have the information. We don't have an environment and we don't have a support network that makes it feel like showing up is possible for me. Not just possible for the success stories I see out there, but I can show up. Consider the Alt-MBA. More than 3,000 alumni in 74 countries around the world. Find out more at altmba.com.